Welcome to Good Technologies, a podcast about how innovators are using technology to make our society a better place in Asia and across the world. This podcast is brought to you by Better.sg, a movement to drive tech for good based in Singapore. We believe that collaborations across disciplines and diverse people can help technology drive better social outcomes. My name is Rovek and I'm your host today. Today's guest is Jeremy Al, a multi-hyphenate, but someone who squarely believes in investing in people and great ideas. Besides being an angel investor in multiple businesses, Jeremy also spearheads Monk Hill Ventures' key initiatives from venture scouts to thought leadership. Jeremy has a number of social enterprises and initiatives under his belt. For one, he co-founded CozyKin, an early education marketplace, and led the startup as CEO from zero to Series A to even a sale. He also co-founded and bootstrapped Conjunct Consulting, an impact consulting platform that we have actually talked about in our previous episodes with Cha Chuan. You should definitely check that out. In this interview, we hear about Jeremy's past projects, talk about his views on bringing his two worlds of investing and social impact together, and discuss how tech-focused projects should think differently about sustainability and financing. Jeremy, welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to be here. I am a big fan of the show and <laughs> a big fan of Eurovic. Big fan of you too, man. It's exactly why I'm looking forward to, to talking to you. And in this case, we're really focusing on tech for good, right? Because we've talked about so many other things in our previous conversations. But, you know, maybe let's just start for our listeners to hear a bit about your early social enterprise ventures. Can you tell us a bit more about it? And really, what were you trying to address or what problems you were trying to solve with both Kozikin as well as Conjunct Consulting. For Conjunct Consulting, Chuan and I came back and we very, very much wanted to help the social sector and really give back in a very professional and a skilled way and to partner with social enterprises and nonprofits in a consulting approach. And there was no way to do it. Obviously, we talked to agencies, we talked to the various platforms and there's a lot of mm-hmm. words, but not a lot of action. There's no real way for us to really engage on that level. And there's a lot of buzzwords there, right? Skills-based volunteerism is the way we define it. Whilst we just said, hey, let's build something where uh, we can actually deploy, you know, that high-skilled consulting, actually get a problem done uh, and partner with the social impact leaders on the ground. And also uh, mentor and train the next generation of impact leaders at the same time as well. And I think we had a tremendous amount of support and you know very pleasant surprise to actually be able to not only build it out and get that initial support, but also find out how difficult it actually was to build it. Also actually realized that we had to define our success, not just be or be a place where we could be at, but and not just where you know dozens or hundreds of people could be at, but how to make it financially sustainable, um, operationally sustainable, uh, and keep it going where it could also scale and uh, grow across multiple universities, organizations, uh, to hundreds of clients and be able to outlive us in that sense, you know, our tenures. And I think that was a really interesting dynamic. So different problems when we first started out with, and the core mission still stays the same, but the problems at each stage continues to change. And I think for Kozikin, you know, we saw the problem was just a huge frustration actually, and a huge stress that new mothers were facing from a fundamental basis about going back to work and their ability to be a mother uh, in the United States. And so from that perspective, we had to make a decision about whether to help them as some of our advisors suggested (laughs) being more of a therapeutic dimension, (laughs) which means, you know, they recommended, hey, maybe give them meditation to accept the fact that there's no childcare, accept the fact that they can't go back to work. 
because there's no good childcare towards a more direct problem solving approach where we actually provided the education uh, and the care in home for their children where they felt comfortable being able to go back to work. And so we were able to do that. And as a result, we were able to by actually solving the problem, actually scaled that out tremendously again to millions of dollars of revenue uh, from that perspective. We were recognized with financial success on one hand. And as a result, you know, with venture capital and funding and all those different things, I look at it more from a personal basis and more like, you know, you know, thousands of parents trusted their most valuable, difficult decision, right? Uh, which is their child, right? The most precious duty responsibility to, to us, right? Uh, which is a big problem to have, especially in the context of being ha- and having to raise a kid in such a problematic environment like the United States of America in terms of work environment, the, you know, labor policies, the social economic uh, issues that are there, the safety issues. So different problems, the different dynamics, but both times around, I think the core of it was really like what is not being solved right now not just at the, you know, theoretical or policy level, which were big words, but what does it mean for the individual person at the end of the day? Both of those problem statements are very intriguing, very relevant. I think especially now, Kosikin and Conjunct Consulting have definitely made a huge dent in the environments that they played in. And actually, the main thing I'm impressed by is really that ability to scale, right? So there is an abundance of social impact projects out there. There's an abundance of social enterprises out there. But actually being able to build something that, as you said, lasts beyond you, lasts a couple of generations and can make sustainable impact, I think is the real, I would say, trophy or the real gold. You talked a bit and you alluded to challenges. I, I'm curious, you know, if you could maybe distill some of the key challenges you faced in scaling both Kozikin and Conjunct Consulting, how would you describe them? In the early days is making sure that your impact statement or what you're trying to solve is really human and really centered. When we started out for Kozikin, we started out actually as a mental health you know, startup, right? So we wanted to do something in mental health. We were looking at postpartum depression. And so these moms were just really sad and depressed about the lack of childcare and the inability to return to work and the inability to resume their careers and their self-identity. And it was a big trigger for depression or stress. And so we decided that actually we could solve the root of the problem by solving the childcare issue because there's a lack of childcare in the urban populations in Boston, in New York, in Brooklyn, in Manhattan. Later, we scaled that to California, Georgia, Texas, et cetera. That being said, if you think about it, because said, well, as our medical advisor said, as a doctor, we can't do childcare or it's not my place to do childcare. Why don't we just teach you a meditation to accept the fact, you know, and it's not a bad thing because it's kind of funny if you think about it, like can you imagine teaching meditation to parents to accept the fact that they can't resume their careers. That's bonkers, right? That's like a really a band-aid on a problem. A lot of people haven't necessarily done the self-work necessary to say, this is something I'm willing to put in, not just one year of work, right? Two years of work, but this is a deep and lasting problem that I'm willing to put five years or 10 years because only with that time horizon going in, can you actually really solve the problem from that deeper dynamic. And that's, the, the crux of it going in is you have to walk into the problem and say, I'm willing to solve it at the individual level for who I'm solving for, but I'm also willing to bring myself as an individual. I will spend the time, not a, me as a policymaker, I'm going to work on this problem for the next five years. Most social enterprises or most impact ventures or most startups, whatever you want to call them, just never take off because they never had that concentration of will and firepower and time in that early time to actually get that off the ground, right? Because there's high octane 
you know, firepower or fuel that you need to get it off the ground. There is a natural life cycle to every project, to every organization. And the tricky part is this is being able to say like, okay, you know, you have this high octane fuel, uh, but because you brought your individual self to it, the truth is organizations are fundamentally more sustainable than an individual, right? So if you look at, a, you, know, you know, the scouts, right? The Boy Scouts, the Girl Scouts, you know, the organizations are much larger than the individuals who founded it. I was a Boy Scout, so I can totally empathize. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right? So people have contributed to the institution for years and years. And obviously, they're going through the challenges today. But the institution still goes, and I'm sure that over time, they'll revitalize themselves and they will eventually renew themselves and figure out what they need to do to continue what they need to be. Because there's that tradition and that heritage, right? And so the truth is, I think... There's this infection point for every leader, for every organization, for every startup, for every social enterprise where they brought themselves for five years. And it goes back to the self-work that we talked about in early days. Is, did you do the self-work in the early days to know that this is an issue I can bring five years of my life to and therefore I can commit fully? In parallel, can you, on towards the tail end of five years, say, I did the self-work and I say, I'm okay with letting go, that I'm okay with building the institution in a way that when my five years is wrapping up that someone else's five years is going to kick in and they want to take it forward. And it's tough because I remember helping conjunct consulting, starting to look for the next leader and so forth. And I remember feeling, you know, obviously there's the intellectual awareness uh, and belief that we needed to look for a new leaders and so forth. But there was an emotional dynamic where I didn't want to let go, right? So I had heard from other folks of organizations that had failed to reach the full potential because they never successfully transitioned to the second generation or third generation leadership. And I had seen for myself, you know, I think the stagnation of those organizations. And yet I felt still the emotional reluctance. When the new person came in, she was better than me. I coached her. The truth is she was better than me for the next stage of the company. She made the decisions that I couldn't make. Uh, her success has meant that conjunct consulting continues to this day. And I share credit, to be honest, for her pushing on the organization to the next stage, right? Because you're talking to me about conjunct consulting, but her work continues to push organization forward. When you were sharing this story, it really resonated because my personal journey with the hidden good is also sort of similar, right? Because with the hidden good, we also needed leadership revival, mostly because I was going to college and we needed someone to take over. But you're absolutely right. I think when we looked for our next executive director, the question that we had to ask was not really who can do what I was doing, but who can do what's necessary for the next stage of the hidden grid, right? And I think that level of multi-generational thinking, I think is super important. I'm going to pause on the social impact stuff. I think this is definitely something we're going to come back to, but I want to take our audience to understand why you went into the investment world, right? So you decided to pivot into venture capital and angel investing, really going on the capital side of the equation. What drove that decision? For me, it's a function of two aspects, right? The first aspect is what I discovered by myself. And the second is what's out there, right? In Southeast Asia. What I discovered by myself is that across these two organizations, what I really loved um, was really hanging out with you know, passionate people, mission-oriented folks, right? That's why I loved all the way since you know, university days, right? When I was a uh, you know, student, I loved being part of the Berkeley Group, which was an organization of, you know, mission-driven consultants working with organizations. Again, there was that sense of purpose, sense of mission. I think the second thing that I cared about is what you mentioned earlier, which is about the desire to scale impact. So scale impact, not necessarily just in terms of quantity, 
but also in terms of the quality and also in terms of the time scale of the impact is very important to me as well. I enjoy coaching, helping and working with people, right? Obviously, I enjoy problem solving. Combined with the fact that with Southeast Asia, I think there's a tremendous set of opportunities, right? There's a huge amount of catch-up growth. Uh, you know, we see that obviously people are still very much a middle income across the whole Southeast Asia. And there's a huge amount of... Um, middle class to be grown. The truth is technology is going to be a big part of their life. It's already a big part of their life. And so I think technology is the answer across Southeast Asia. That's the reason why um, when I came back two years ago, you know, the first thing I did was, you know, actually end up, you know, and the reason why we reconnected was because I set up a podcast, right? Podcast was very much about Southeast Asia technology because I was just passionate about just hearing the stories across Southeast Asia, people making that difference, uh, being passionate about Southeast Asia and technology and making a difference and thinking about how they were being authentic and reflective about it. Having been able to interview, you know, over 150 of folks, I think you can go to www.jeremyow.com. I've really enjoyed listening to a whole bunch of them. You do a really good job. You and your team do a really good job of, of not just bringing together really inspiring thought leaders and personalities, but actually extracting some of those lessons, right? Because I think sharing a journey is one thing, but really getting into the heart of the issue, understanding some of those critical decisions that were made and the thought process behind them. I think it's great. So yeah, absolutely. For those listening, please go check out Brave by Jeremy Al. I think it's, it's definitely a, a good podcast to add to your collection. But I, I wanted to pick up on something that you were talking about, right? You were talking about how it's really aligned with a lot of the things that you are passionate about. One thing that you mentioned, and actually in one of our earlier chats, Jeremy, pre this recording, is that you mentioned that you also believe that fundamentally venture capital or the work in venture capital is also contributing to its social impact. And so I'm curious to understand what that means, right? Because I think a lot of people see the tech for good space as maybe more nonprofit oriented, maybe more charity oriented, and then they see the venture capital spaces, very profit driven, very capitalist. But you don't see that dichotomy. In fact, you see it as really more of a blend. I think the first question we're asking about is, what is venture capital? The second is, what is venture capital funding, which is technology and business? And the third is, what is impact of technology and business versus you know, the social sector, right? Uh, those are the three levels that we have to understand that. And I think the way I often want to quickly articulated is, would we want to live in a world without electricity? You and I are doing a podcast today through the internet, which was funded by, you know, DAPA and venture capitalists, you know, the multiple VCs that funded all of this, et cetera. And now we can do this amazing thing called communicate over the internet uh, across this country and record this and distribute this across Southeast Asia and even in the world, not only across space, but across time, right? Because someone could listen to this Anytime. and learn from this conversation, right? So we have a time capsule going on. So I think there's a dynamic where technology has allowed us to do this amazing thing that we have here. And I can tell you that I like a life where we can do this more than a life where we could not. Venture capital, like capital, is only a form of funding, is a form of inputs. It is a form of way to fund. But the real thing it funds, the real iceberg below the water is really technology. People are looking at venture capital like, oh, venture capital is good or bad, but it's not. It, what is it funding? It's like, it was funding is technology. The real thing we're asking is, are we comfortable with technology? More technology, more acceleration, the changes is changing in society, electricity, whatever it is. And that's really, I think, the discomfort that's happening, right? 
But what it does not answer, and I think where I have a personal point of view, is that the deepest layer beyond that is what's the responsibility that we all have as technologists, that's one way of saying it, as venture capitalists, sure, that's one subset, as operators, as policy makers, and so on and so forth, whoever we are, what is our responsibility to society in the midst of this change? It's a bigger philosophical point on the role of technology, right? I remember doing a master's course on like how we have to see technology and the influence in our communities as socio-technical systems. Right? So it's not just technology determinism where technology solves all things, but really thinking about it and how human beings engage and interact. And so the point to take away from, from what you just shared is that venture capital and capital in general is not too distant away from social impact, right? In fact, in a lot of ways, it is a key enabler of social impact. When we start our projects, we tend to be primarily impact focused. We primarily focus on what is the social goal that we're trying to address. As you mentioned, the people that we're trying to benefit or to bring on the journey with us. And then financial sustainability is normally an afterthought. What would you say to all these project leaders who are developing tech for good projects that can have a huge impact? And how would you encourage them to think about sustainability? Because they're going to need funding. They're going to need the ballast in order to build these projects. But at the same time, they don't want to let the, as you mentioned, some of the externalities or some of the issues around people wanting to just exploit technology for less palatable ends. There are two dimensions. I think the first is the projects. And the second one is the example and modeling that is being set for the team. From day one, do what we talked about, which is focus on being very, very, very focused on what the problem is on an individual level and only work on a problem that you actually care about as an individual and as a team. In other words, if someone on your team doesn't care about a problem, don't try to convince them to stay, just let them go. <laughs> if you don't care about a problem, just leave and work on a problem you care about. That's okay. Because don't waste one year or people's time. Just work on a problem you actually care about. You need a high octane. You need everybody pull in the same direction to actually get it off the ground. You can't have a sustainable project if everybody on the team doesn't care about a project. So on a day one, you just got to care about a project so deeply that you understand the problem so intuitively. The second aspect is really important, which is I'm assuming that you're starting this project now or that you're early in this project, which is most people, is you really should seek to not destroy the team's faith and conviction and desire for good, which is that the people in your team, if they care about a problem, et cetera, they should not walk away from this project and they should not walk away with a bitter taste in their mouth. They should not walk away saying tech for good projects or social impact projects can never scale. They should never walk away with a perspective that, oh, you know, this was a bad project or there's no economics involved. If you're a leader is that you're not only building the projects in the short term, and maximizing the sustainability impact, which is key because everybody's there for that. But also making sure that you have built a project that activates and maintains the fire uh, for the people uh, around you because that's true gift to society. They don't have to be profit-driven uh, to be sustainable. They have to be sustainable to be sustainable. And sustainability means they have to be at least break-even on a monetary basis, but they also have to be break-even from a people basis, right? How does an impact project be truly impactful, right? You know, And then define it Define the impact in your way. And the way I define impact is in terms of quantity, in terms of quality, in terms of time period or generational, um, and then work backwards from there. 
Uh, and I think if you do it that way, then, you know, mission accomplished, right? You know, if your project is three months and it wasn't profitable and you spend $10,000 of your own money to do it, but you achieve the goal of, you know, delivering masks to the needy in the middle of a pandemic who couldn't get a mask. And yeah, it's financial aid. It's your own money. It's was not profitable, but you did something good and it made you happy and it saved the lives of people who will never know your name. Yeah. You achieve his goal of impact, right? That did not need to be profitable. Uh, and it was not even sustainable by the definitions of this earlier podcast, but it was impactful, right? So I think defining impact by your personal standard uh, is really key. And if it just happens that if you define impact by the standards of sustainability, then thinking about it from people's sustainability and financial sustainability is key. And if it happens that you think define impact by ability to scale rapidly and be able to access venture capital, then profitability would be a metric that you have to care about as a result. You know, don't let the tail wag your dog, I always like to say. I think this is a great conversation on sustainability. And I think especially for the projects who are maybe in a more mature stage or who are starting to think about really that long tail of, of the impact that they want to create. I think some of these conversations are good to have, right? Whether there needs to be some sort of a, a sustainability model. Maybe part of it is driven by profit, but at the overall, actually, you know, impact is a key driver, right? And I think these are these are interesting areas to continue exploring. Jeremy will definitely be chatting more about this either uh, as part of Better.SG or maybe even in our own uh, catch-ups later on. But I wanted to wrap up the podcast by asking some of the quote-unquote fun questions we ask all our guests. So uh, this is really for our guests to get to know you. We'll start with the first one, which is what do you do to practice balance and intentionality in your day-to-day life? The way I try to center myself is really go for long walks with trusted friends and have a deep conversations uh, about life um, and career, being thoughtful about why am I doing something, you know, and then why am I feeling that way? And not necessarily just thinking about how I am trying to optimize for the best thing to do, right? You know, what's the right thing to do? Or what's the, you know, you know, biggest or best or larger or right thing to do? Well, here's the last question. So we ask this question to everyone. In one word, what is the future of tech? Dreams. Uh, dreams come true. That's a great note to, to wrap this podcast up on because... This whole episode has been about sustainability, about thinking about long-lasting impact. And I think that's really something to, to hold front and center as we build a lot of our projects. Jeremy, thank you once again for coming on the show, for spending the time with us to share about your experiences and your perspectives on this matter. And I hope that whoever's listening, uh, if you feel so inspired, please you know take that challenge up and, and build a sustainable project that can really make an impact for others. Yeah, thank you so much. And if you are interested, uh, feel free to go to uh, www.jeremyow.com to, I guess, hear the podcast and actually hear Rovik's uh, episode in the past as well. Thanks for joining us on this episode of The Good Technologist. If you like what we are doing, you can always find out more on our website, better.sg, and subscribe to the podcast via your typical channels such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever app you prefer. This podcast was produced and edited by myself, Rovik Robert, and our email address is goodtech at better.sg. Please let us know what you think.